0: Welcome to Stuff Ian Likes, the podcast about stuff that Ian likes. My name's Ian Banks. I'm using this podcast to look at how some of my favourite pieces of art have changed the way I look at the world. It explores how art can affect the way we look at things around us, and it's a chance for me to go squee over things that I love. I'm not going to do a deep dive into the background of each piece. What you're going to get is a brief survey of what it is, what I like about it, and how it's influenced me in my own thinking. Thanks for joining me. The last episode featured two novels that didn't have a lot in common except the fact that I liked them both. This episode features two movies that have got a bit more in common. Not just that I like them both, but they had an effect on the way I watch movies, and they've also got one person in common in the production team. Listen on and find out just what it is that I like about The Princess Bride and The Tall Guy. A young boy lays sick in bed. His grandfather arrives to read him a story to make him feel better. The boy is less than impressed with this, but acquiesces. He is horrified to discover, though, that this book, despite his grandfather's claims to the contrary, is in fact a kissing book. But almost against his will, he listens on. This is a framing device for the story of Buttercup and Wesley, who discover that they have true love for each other. Wesley leaves to seek his fortune, but is reported as being killed by the dread pirate Robert's scourge of the seas. Buttercup resolves never to love again, however five years later she is engaged to Prince Humperdinck. One morning, she goes out riding and is abducted by three plotters, Vecini, Enogamontoya, and Fezik. They plan to murder her and lay a trail, blaming another kingdom, but they haven't reckoned on the mysterious man in black who is pursuing them. The Princess Bride's an almost perfectly put-together film. It starts quietly, introducing characters and situations, one after the other, and then it builds a stakes and tension until you can't stop watching it. It begins and ends, and is occasionally interrupted, by the framing device of a sick boy being read to by his grandfather. And the story gradually takes over again, with only occasional interruptions. I once read an interview with Albert Finney where he was talking about pacing in comedy. He said comedy should be very tightly disciplined. You shouldn't give an audience much opportunity to laugh in the first third of a play. Then over the second act, you slowly release it, and in the third act, you just let it rip. The Princess Bride is an almost textbook example of how you do this. Production-wise, it's a fairly average film, but the pacing and tension is almost perfect. It goes quite slowly until you reach... For me, the scene where Buttercup dives into the water with the screaming eels, and then it begins to let go. Then you realise that you might actually be enjoying it. The moment where Viscini and Fezzik are arguing over Fezzik's employment status is for me when it starts to relax and you become totally caught up in it. And then it just lets rip and doesn't stop until the final scene. It's adapted for the screen by William Goldman from his own novel of the same name, and you should read that because it's even better than the film, and it's directed by Rob Reiner. It was, the Princess Bride was released in 1987 to a fairly lukewarm reception before becoming an absolute classic on video. It's a perfect rainy day movie with a very gentle heart to it, and it's amazingly quotable. And while I really can't hope to compete visually with more recent films, it's a perfectly acceptable way to while away 87 minutes of your time over and over again. Inconceivable! So we think we know Richard Curtis, right? He's that immensely well-known British writer slash director who helped make British cinema what it is today. He reinvented the romantic comedy before it sank under the weight of the clichés that he had created himself. He's also the co-creator and co-author of Blackadder, and possibly the figure most responsible for the rise of Hugh Grant as an actor. Mm -hmm. This movie is where you can see him transition from his screenwriting sketch comedy roots to what he's become today. It's got everything we know and love or hate about his movies. It's got the gormless but much more clued up than everybody about him lead. It's got the quirky and adorable female lead the bizarre circle of friends and acquaintances, a supporting cast or cameos played by a who's who of British comedy. There's an utter balls up of a perfect situation that drives the third act and it's even got the very first of his trademark racing to the climax scenes. The only real difference between this and anything he produced after it would be that the jokes are quite a bit more blue than what we've become used to since about Notting Hill. So what's the tall guy about? Well, Dexter King is the eponymous tall guy of the title. He spent the last few years playing straight man to Ron Anderson. One day, though, he meets nurse Kate Lemon and falls instantly for her. So much so that after what is possibly the funniest sex scene ever committed to film, he's late for work and is fired. But all is not lost for Dexter because soon after this he's cast as the lead in Elephant. A musical based on the life of the elephant man, which is frankly worth watching the rest of the movie for the tall guy isn't a film to everyone's taste, and it does take a little time to build up a reasonable head of steam on it, but I love it because it's sense of humor. It's there's a lot to be said for a film that's so willing to poke fun at the industry that created it. It's also got a big heart and a simple but compelling story. There are some great gags and characters. And if you're a fan of Mr. Bean, you might recognize a couple of Ron and Dexter's routines. And the entire plot line that deals with the production of Elephant will be hilarious to anyone who spent some time around theater. But there's a few predictable jokes or things that don't come off terribly well in their execution. A lot of the time it does feel like an extended episode of a sitcom rather than a movie which isn't surprising given Curtis's background in TV, and uh, Mel Smith, who's the director, he has a similar background in television as well. But there's enough joy and humanity to keep you watching, and it's interesting to watch because you see where Curtis starts to develop a lot of themes and ideas for his future work. As you wish. At first glance, there's not a lot that these two films have in common. They were both produced in the UK during the 1980s. Mel Smith has a small part in one of them. He plays the albino in The Princess Bride, and he directed The Tall Guy. One's a fairly traditional fantasy movie, while the other is a fairly rude comedy set in London's theatre scene. What they have in common is that I watched them within a few months of each other and started to change my ideas about what movies meant to me. A couple of years prior to seeing these films, I'd become interested in theatre myself. I hadn't done much, but I was keen on acting and was interested in what you could achieve on stage. This interest made me become, in the words of one member of my family, a pretentious little wanker. They weren't wrong. I'd started to watch a lot of arthouse movies on SBS, I went to a lot of theatre shows that promised a fair amount of shouting and shadowy lighting effects, and I stopped going to the movies. Or at least, I stopped going to see movies that were fun. I'd become quite serious about cinema. I didn't know enough at the time to realise that you could meld art and pleasure in a way that didn't make you a crushing bore at parties, and I'd yet to notice the business part of show business. I was determined to only watch things that could be considered cinematic masterpieces. Fortunately, this period of my life only lasted a couple of years. I was at a mate's place one day in early 1989, and it was raining. He suggested a movie, I shrugged, I agreed, and he put on The Princess Bride. I was hooked almost instantly. I laughed nearly all the way through, cheered when Inigo finally got his revenge on the six-fingered man and Wesley faced down Prince Humperdinck while being mostly dead. I loved the sheer absurdity of it, as well as the honesty of which the actors played their parts. I realised that it could have been a much worse film and that it was the witty script and wonderful performances that elevated it. I made an exception to my arty film rule for this one. A few months later, I was at another mate's place late on a Friday night, and he suggested we watch something. I shrugged again. I'd had a few beers by this point and was happy to do anything. He put on the tall guy. Honestly, that first viewing was hilarious. I'd done a bit more theatre by this point, and I recognised some of the types that were being sent up as being a bit similar to people I knew from the Hobart scene. But it was the scenes from Elephant that really got me hooked. They were hysterical, but produced with all the sincerity that you might expect from people performing a real musical. It looked like proper theatre, in other words. So a change began to come over me. I accepted that there could be some worth in what I'd sneered at as popular entertainment, and I began to be a bit more accepting of what my friends enjoyed, and as a consequence, I got invited to a lot more nights out to the movies. If you'd like some more Stuff Ian Likes, you can read more at StuffIanLikes.com and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at StuffIanLikes, which is all one word, or you can go to Facebook to the Stuff Ian Likes page. That's three words. Thanks for listening.